What's up and welcome to another episode of Black in the Maritimes. I'm Fidel. I'm Hillary. I'm Clinton. And we have a guest today. Uh, but before we introduce our guest, we're back on Zoom after our two lives. <laughs> so we're back away because Hillary's back in Toronto. But nevertheless, we will speak that on that later. But right now we have a special guest. We have a writer, poet, and, you know, a very cool artist. I, I would say I saw his videos on YouTube. Uh, definitely, it's quite inspiring. Uh, we have Tanue McCarthy. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, you know, I got to give props to Hillary. We interviewed your mom uh, not so long ago. Hillary pulled that off and she pulled that off with you as well. Uh, so, yeah, we're definitely glad to be here. Uh, so, while we start this, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do uh, before we, we get into. Uh, well, uh, I'm a writer. I recently completed my memoir, Social Oblivion, Raised Black in New Brunswick. I uh, am a spoken word artist. I've done presentations at uh, Flourish Festival and at the Playhouse and uh just got back from a residency a couple months ago from Quishibaquack National Park. And that was a cross-cultural residency where they picked 10 artists, three Anglophone, three Indigenous, and three Francophone, and one jury's choice. And uh, I got the jury's choice. So, uh, and that was great. 10 days out uh, in, uh, I would say the woods, but we had nice cabins just hanging out. And uh, that's that's pretty much me. Oh, yeah. And acting president of the New Brunswick Black Artist Alliance, giving a platform and skills to professional artists in New Brunswick that self-identify as black and just helping them get work and teaching them how to, you know, survive when they're out there making culture. Oh, well, so, so you, you do quite a lot. You're a busy guy. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's definitely so uh, we're going to talk about all of that, but let's walk a little bit back. And, and again, your story is quite interesting because we interviewed your mom, uh, but you are a seventh generation Black Canadian, maritime Black Canadian, which yeah. is, uh, that's something that a lot of people don't know that, you know, we had generations of Black people in New Brunswick. Uh, and uh, your mom was very kind to explain us that. But talk about your childhood. How was that like living in, in New Brunswick? Uh, I would say it was, you know, similar to many people that grow up here in New Brunswick. My story wasn't too much different other than uh, we had a big family. There was a lot of people. We all kind of lived at grandma's house. And as the matriarch of the family, she uh, made sure that we all got together, played board games. All the kids and nephews were well attended to. I mean, she was teaching and I believe it was the 1940s in segregated schools in uh, North Preston, Nova Scotia. So she just brought that education back when I was born and a kid in her house to every kid got a very specific way of teaching. I was dyslexic, so I got word searches. My cousin was very people shy. He sang in the choir at church and did scouts. Like every one of us, whatever our uncomfortable zones were, grandma was always there to push us in recreational ways to explore that uncomfortable space. And uh, so, I mean, other than having a kick-ass grandma, I mean, it was pretty normal. Wow, that, that is a shout out to grandma. Holy. 
And uh, that's a good thing that you said, like your grandmother was a teacher in the segregation days in North Preston. Uh, for those of you, well, if to this podcast, North Preston is in Nova Scotia. Uh, it's one of the oldest black communities in Canada. Uh, did your grandma ever told you stories of those days of how segregation was in, in North Preston and as no, a teacher? Not at all. This is where my upbringing as a black Canadian may differ from other families because my grandma never whispered a word about culture or color. The only C she would ever bring up is character. Everything was about do the best you can, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It was about hard work and making sure you had enough to provide for those you love. It wasn't about being black or the black experience. It was about the human experience and to maximize your efforts in that realm so that no matter what discrimination you face, you'll be able to manage it. And that's a great way to do it. I mean, definitely. I mean, I think that's how we all, as people of color, we see it. We don't see ourselves as people of color. We just see ourselves as people. And we just want to do the best we, as best we want. We want to get the best of, of our character. And again, that's what we always wanted to judge. And that's always something that we point out. We never see ourselves as people. It isn't until somebody <laughs> comes and says, hey, you're not white. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you may not be from here or you got and and again it is quite not shocking to us because we we lived that experience uh but it's quite shocking like for example as i see you uh you are as as anybody else you were raised in new brunswick way you were raised in the maritime way no difference to anybody else as you just said like it was just and then but it, it always comes at a place that's somebody tells you you're different or somebody tries to that's not did that do you remember when that happened to you i don't know if i could put a finger on an exact moment it's always public education when you're just crashed up against all those other students like i was one of two black people in my elementary school in woodstock and the other one was my younger cousin so, I mean, definitely you get teased. Oh, yes, it just came up. My mother, as you know, his name is Mary. So they would sing the song, Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was black as coal. And they would sing that to me. And I wouldn't even internalize that. because I'm just like, that's a fun play of words. You know, I was bookish. I'm a nerd. I'm flaunting the Batman shirt. So I was just like, okay, that's interesting. But, you know, I'd go home and I'd tell mom that and who would be talking to the teachers that evening and who would be in there saying this is bullying, this is disrespectful and how dare you single out my child. And uh, but, yeah, I would say definitely the teasing and other people reminded me of who they thought I was or what they thought was important about me more than I ever, you know, acknowledged it verbally. I never walked around saying I'm black. And, uh, and nobody does. No, that's the thing. No, nobody ever would say that. Uh, but I think that's the, that's a very, very interesting point that you said that you didn't internalize it, but your mom did. Your mom was the one that went straight to the school and say, how dare you do this and you do that. And Hillary might be speaking because Hillary uh, went to the same. It always seems like every time 
uh, we interview people that grew up in school. It's school when they first get that first, you know, realization that, oh, things are not necessarily the same for you. Not because you don't know. You're like, wait a minute, I'm the same as everybody else. But everybody, the system is like, oh, no, 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 wait, wait a minute. Uh, what do you think is that the school system, the, like, do you think it's because that's the first thing you think or, or that you go, kids go? Or do you think it's the system itself that has never changed? Because, again, we, we have gotten a lot of guests as long, young as probably 19. And it's still the same experience that it's, it's usually at school when that happens. Yeah, I mean, I am no fan of the public education system. And a majority of my memoir is just on the terrible things experienced in that from students and administration. So I would have to say on the administrative side, it's, I don't know, because it is set in. If you are a black student in English class specifically, because I've, you know, walked around with people on this conversation a few laps and always English class, there is an expectation as a self-identifying black individual that you have to be able to put up with whatever slurs and whatever book is read and you just have to deal with your comfort level being broken constantly and uh yeah i i i don't think that space is made to teach us to be capable citizens without you know undue trauma as much as it is for whatever they consider the majority of you know european descent british like because it's it's rough and as i said you know i was born here canadian yada 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 all the disclaimers and the qualifiers and it was still rough i could not imagine someone a family that immigrated here and put their kids through that system and uh what they experience Fidel, i think you're muted yeah, I could hear, I could see Fidel playing with his headphones. I think he uh, lost audio. I can't hear you. Perhaps. I'll use this as a time to comment since you threw it to me anyway, though. The, in school, I like, I experienced very much the same thing, but it was, it's, I think, rooted in the fact that we still only talk about um, Black history in terms of trauma and slavery. So the only place they can bring that up is making everybody read To Kill a Mockingbird. You have to sit there while white kids are finally granted the N-word pass and then they stare at you while they say it and you're just like soaked in the shame of your color even though that has nothing to do with like your ancestry or your background or your people. I think it's getting to a place where it's slightly better but it's it's just that schools are run by white people for white people. And then those white people do not know how to broach the taboo, quote unquote, taboo subjects that they need to, which is just the history of the kids who attend. It's, it's, a, it's a failing system. And I mean, uh, and I have to, I'm going to change the microphones in a bit because I hear different. I think that there's a little bit of a problem here. Uh, you said something cool. You said that you can't imagine how an immigrant family <laughs> would will get that from here because they they would get it now did you Fredericton or uh, Woodstock is a small it's a small place uh did you ever run into any type of immigrant family facing that type of problem no I will say that back in those days the only black families I ran into were related to me 
to the point that my mom would fly in one of her friend's kids from Toronto to hang out with me. So I would have, you know, a black male friend to hang out and run around in the woods with that wasn't related to me. Cause there was just no one that looked like me that I didn't, you know, go to their birthdays and wasn't planning Christmas, you know, hangouts with either way. So it's a minority in every extreme sense of the word. Oh, wow. We really were an Island in Woodstock in the eighties and early nineties. And your mom said that herself too. Like uh, your mom said that she was a, she was a, 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 a you, you guys were all, a, can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay. So your mom said that as well, that you got, that the guys went to it. And now uh, what did you think yourself uh, now that you are a professional and an artist, uh, how did that influence you to what you are now? Well, now I'm always saying I'm black. And uh, exploring my blackness and learning about the diversity of it and the resources you can use inside of your identity to empower your activities and safeguard your mental health, really exploring that it's become, you know, from something that I just tried to avoid because it was so connected to social shaming to something that I embrace because it, it helps me get more done like following through with my culture and feeling a sense of pride and kind of standing up for the injustices makes me feel like more of a whole person, I would say. So that's really came from me exploring my blackness. And that's kind of where my poetry and writing all erupted. from. So I wanted to ask about this and it's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is because not only because I really enjoyed my conversation with your mom, but because I am a published poet and was published at University of Moncton. And at the time when I was writing, I was writing through my trauma about my mother becoming disabled. Um, and I really wanted to ask where in your childhood, especially because I obviously I did not know that you grew up dyslexic, who was it or where in your childhood did you find that somebody instilled in you the power of words and words not really as a weapon, but as as ammunition to fuel that fire towards speaking out about your culture and speaking up for yourself? Because I always find that really interesting. Uh I have no short answers. I will just say that. So long answers are welcome. Long answers are welcome. (laughs) (laughs) To pull that apart, no one introduced to me the strength of the written word for, for me to do writing in particular, to be able to read it and understand it. I would say that I definitely got that from my mother. Anytime we were going out through the grocery store and I would look at a comic book or an Archie or a Casper, she'd pick it up, throw it on top of the Cheerios and the milk. And then, you know, she'd bring it through and I'd be reading it in the car. Like she'd never refuse a book was one of her rules as a kid. If I showed any interest in any literature, it was bought. There was no, so I was very well read, but when it comes to poetry, my learning was really experienced through living in a house with eight people at it, at least, and just trying to be heard among my family, where everyone's using their own rhythm and there's people laughing at the television in the living room, people debating while playing games in the kitchen, other people are cooking food, like 
and to be able to ask one person if you want to go, if you can borrow money to go to the store to get some ice cream and the other people are interrupting you and saying, boy, you don't need ice cream. And you'd be like, yeah, but I did the chores. And it's like, you should be doing, you have to learn how to move with the rhythm and constantly keep your voice interesting and your words at such a pitch that you just become heard. And I, I don't know, the, the furnace of family conversation, I would say, is where I learned uh, the rhythm of poetry and stuff. Because, you know, you just got to express. That's such an interesting answer. But then, so did you, did you later realize, like, I mean, we had very different upbringings. I was raised by a white mom. So it wasn't until I discovered my, like, Black identity that I thought, oh, I can use the power that I hold with words to advocate for Black rights, to explain my story, to appeal to a group of people. At what point did you start to piece that together, that like this voice you were trying to have amongst a a household of eight people could also be used for like the greater good of the Black community? Uh, I think that was early on in my artist career when a bunch of other poets like older white poets were constantly coming to me and saying, who taught you poetry? Like where in public school did you learn what teacher, like who are your role models? And I never connected to Shakespeare. I never connected to any of these individuals. And it was them constantly telling me that I should have been taught the skill I have now by some white leader in literature that made me reflect and be like, Actually, it was just talking with my family every day and constantly learning different personalities and wants and needs and the economy of attention that happens in a house, a giant house. Like mom has eight brothers and sisters. All those brothers and sisters have kids. And like sometimes those kids have kids because I'm further down on the list for because mom's a little younger. It's a. I don't know. It's just a wealth of experience for a spoken word poet. And it was going through public schooling and I was always able to hold court and give long winded speeches, much like I am right now, that I realized my rants about things I'm passionate about tended to come with a certain rhythm. And that wasn't taught in drama class in high school that wasn't taught by a specific teacher that you know took me aside and showed me these are the certain skills you built up already let's nurture that talent it really just become a part of who I am and that's quite interesting because usually and again I think it's because uh your family comes from a generation of you know black descendants and I, I think people like your mom try to that's still a thing uh, but you're saying yourself that you find your yourself because of your family, right? Because you were in in a household uh, full of black people, you had to find your not in school, not in not outside. And again, you seen things like Archie and stuff like that. Now, going back to that, and maybe you can explain this a little bit better. When you were at school, and did you started doing poetry in high school or in middle school, or this was after? <laughs> No, I really, uh, I have no memories of really connecting to poetry in my uh, public education. I will tell you what I did do. I've always been someone that's journaled. I am highly reflective. I'm very introverted. I like my solitude. So I'm always writing out my thoughts. And just so you know, I can reach some conclusion within myself. 
And through that, like back in the days when we had, you know, MSN Messenger and we had statuses like for our names, I would always update my status with a little line of my thoughts. And that could be considered like a single verse of poetry. And every day I would update that for something else that was, I forget. uh, Anyway, it'll come to me later and I'll bring it up for what one of them were. But yeah, they were little reflections on basically my emotional state, which, you know, high school, everything's dark and depressing and we're all rallying against the administration and they ain't teaching me nothing I'm ever going to use and all that stuff. So, and that's, that's one of the things that I, you know, I try to reflect even myself uh, when I wasn't, when I wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a Spanish character. And in myself, I was the rebel. I was listening to like great people were like, what the f- is this hip hop anyways, or this rock thing. So, and it's kind of say that you, you had those strengths, but you didn't develop them there. Uh, now, once you were in school, what the, what did you think at that time that was there anything else that you were thinking besides being a writer or a poet? Be, I don't know, uh, a mechanic, a welder, an engineer, a doctor? Ah, that's a good question. I've never analyzed what were my uh, career goals as a kid. I don't know. I don't think I ever, I just really enjoyed hanging out with a bunch of people. Like I always filled up the house with like, Again, replicating what I had in the family, I'm not really content, even though I'm an introvert, unless I have like eight of my best friends around me and we're all talking and hanging out and sharing pizza and, you know, walking up and down the trail. So I constantly just organized these large gatherings of friends at my place and never put too much uh, pressure on what the vision was going to be after school and all that. Oh, well, so your mom never said, what are you going to do with your life? What's happening? No, that was uncles. Mom was just finished school. Oh, it was never finished school. So you can do this and become this and then do that. And that's kicking me in the butt now, by the way, because now I'm realizing, oh, those talents, why didn't I build them up like later? Because everything takes 10 years. So I just started putting in my 10 years three years ago. So I'm, you know, I'm playing catch up with what do I want to be career and all that. And, uh, but back then it wasn't anything. It was just about having the most intense, immersive moments with as many people as I can pack into a room as possible and curate those experiences. And, uh, yeah. But I will tell you this. I don't think you're missing. Uh, go ahead, Clinton. Oh, that's okay. Um, you, you finish your thought, Fidel, and then I'll... Well, I'll, what I was going to say questions. is that I don't think you're missing because I think we, we, we are all playing catch-up. Uh, nobody really tells us in school or kids, like, this is how life is going. In fact, I will, I will say personally, and we get more of our education by the media, more E and radio, and we kind of like a glimpse of what life may be, which is not true. Uh, but we don't... Nobody tells us in school, hey, you need to open a bank account, get a loan, rent an apartment, get a life, and uh, you got to pay these bills. Like, <laughs> nobody tells you that. Like, it, I, I don't remember that ever being in school. Uh, and I think it's not that we, we're all playing catch up because once we get out of this system of educational system or even our family system, not necessarily educational, maybe our ecosystem of family, maybe when we move to another city, we go to university at another city. Once we leave that nest, we start to realize like, oh, there's a world out there. There's this rent thing that I have to pay. And there's this credit card interest thing. Like, 
what the fuck is this? I don't understand. And I have to do this to do that. And if I want to get a, a girl or a boy, I need to get this done. Or if I like this person, I, I have to interact. Like it, it, we are all playing catch up because we, we were never taught the system of life. We were taught like this thing is supposed to educate us and we become good citizens. That's, that's, yeah. that's all over us. So I don't think you're playing catch up. I think you're just being as anybody else go ahead clinton just trying to navigate life yeah and like i keep saying on the show everybody that that is not by accident that is by design they yeah they the things they should be teaching you in school they don't because they don't want everyone to know <laughs> they want to keep these secrets for you know the people in power the the rich people's kids politics finances all of that that, that they don't That's not basic education. But anyways, Tondoy, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really enjoying the conversation. It's been a while since we had a guest, so I'm having a lot of fun listening. Um, we've been talking a lot about your poetry, but didn't you also publish a book, uh, Memoirs, or is the book a poetry book? And you are the president of the New Brunswick Historical Society. I'd love to hear more about that as well. The New Brunswick Black Artist Alliance. Sorry, I thought I read... <sighs> I could have swore when I read earlier that it was the historical society. Okay. So that's to me, actually, that is equally, if not more interesting. Um, the New Brunswick Black Artists Alliance. What do you guys do? What, what is your mantra? How do you get black artists out there in New Brunswick and get their, their voices heard? And then also, can you talk about your book? Yeah, so absolutely. Well, it started when I went in, I'm always that it all began once upon a time. Might as well be my poet name once upon a time. But uh, so when I started being uh, a poet and going into spaces, I realized very quickly that I was the only black person in those spaces. And a fun thing I love to do is look at the membership of all these official organizations in New Brunswick and find out just how many people of color, not just black people, but people of color are actually there in the membership. And it's always under, you know, 10 So I started wondering, where are all the other Black artists and why aren't they engaging in these opportunities? Because these organizations give free workshops, resources, teach professionalism. And I constantly wondered, why are these resources that are funded by the provincial government to these nonprofits so they can reach these communities? Why are these resources not actually reaching the communities? And uh, I just started talking to black people and asking them, are you creative? Do you have a hobby? What do you do? Would you like to make money with that? And uh, I found nine times out of 10, they were very interested in having their work shown or expressed. They just didn't know how to go about it. And down the road of that, I ran into the president of the Black Artist Network in Nova Scotia bands, David Woods. And he said, listen, if you can put a bunch of people in the room We'll say six. I will teach you all and come down to New Brunswick and teach you all how to build your own organization so you can do what we did here. And so I got nine people in a room because I previously had been, you know, hitting the streets, talking to people. And uh, I was in campus at that time. So going to all the uh, BIPOC barbecues and all that and just, you know, writing down names and just asking questions. So I invited them. They showed up. We started it. And our mandate was really just be the advocate for artists in this province for when those calls go out, because these organizations will make calls for either BIPOC and not black or people of color and not black. And they constantly mean 
to get black artists and they want to do that, but they feel as if there's a block to asking just for black artists. And we want to be that organization that represents the people that they can come to. And then we offer those opportunities. So we've put on exhibitions for artists like Gary Weeks. We did that. And that was a, a wonderful gallery. One of his, I think it was when his one of his first or second exhibition he's had. He's the first photographer at the Gallery of Queen here in Fredericton, right on uh, one of the main streets. We've done panels where we talk about what it's like to be an artist. And uh, what did we do recently? Oh, yeah. We recently partnered with Black Lives Matter Fredericton to put on New Brunswick's Emancipation Celebration, the provincial event celebrating Canada finally after 187 years, actually recognizing it as a national significant day. So we put on a giant celebration that included getting speakers, uh, like five speakers, Frederick Mengabu, my mother, Mary McCarthy, the president of the New Brunswick African Association, president of uh, Black Lives Matter, Fredericton. Then we went on a march for one kilometer to represent the many, many, many kilometers that families walked on the Underground Railroad to get to Canada. And then at the legislative building here in Fredericton, we had a big celebration. We had Black DJ, we had food, and everything was Black planned, Black run, Black funded, all Black volunteers. Like, we really had a great, great, great time celebrating ourselves. And that's just kind of the stuff that uh, ENBA, the short, is uh, all about. Creativity, expression, and cultural you know, protection. That's amazing. And now before you talk about your book, I have another question. So for people listening or for people listening who for people listening who are artists and for people listening who know artists who think they might want to get involved with that, like how, how do they, what do they have to do? Do they just contact like in the page contact you personally is there an application how, how does a, a black artist in new brunswick join absolutely there is an application process so you would send an email to info.nbbaa at gmail.com info.nbbaa at gmail.com and you would just write a short little uh say 300 word uh paragraph of why your art means something special to you like why do you do it why why can't you stop being creative and uh why did you pick this particular medium and then send us samples and then after we review it it's twenty dollars for the annual membership and uh that money goes to helping put on more events and uh all that good stuff but yeah definitely recruiting is one of my personal main things. The other board members have other ideas for what are priorities, but I tell you mine, getting as many black artists as possible under one organization, because that is where the power of change will be. Because we can talk about legislation and policies and all the injustices and all the things we want to do and need to do and get black spaces and all this stuff. But the thing that keeps that stable is artists and creativity 
the things that diffuses the education to the masses, to the public, and even those in our community are the poems, the music, the songs, the writing. It's really the artist that's the glue that holds change together. So I realized early on that if we want Black change in New Brunswick, we need a supply of Black artists who are willing to help put in for that change. And uh, so that's kind of my personal vision for why I'm doing this. Cool. That's cool. And your book, it's called Social Oblivion, Raised Black in New Brunswick? Yes. It's uh, the manuscripts finished. I am sent it off to several publishers and contests and waiting back. It is from zero to 20. Maybe I should say, yeah, zero to 20, because it starts with my birth story of mom telling what, like, the last week it was, like, carrying me and how the first couple years it was raising me so people can kind of get a view into my earlier life that I don't remember because she knows what I was like and she'll say like I was spelling her name with letter blocks when I was a kid and I was very articulate and she could just like hang out and read a book and I would be there completely content to just go through and build things with toys I was very self-sufficient and uh I didn't need a lot of attention. And those are things I don't know about myself that I still have today, but I wanted to put in the book so my readers will see that there is a through line of, you know, who I am straight from birth to 20 and how I dealt with it in my family environment and then how I tried to deal with it in the public education environment and what the trauma that happened to my identity through teachers and faculty telling me that, You're not going to do anything unless you memorize your times tables. You're not going to do anything unless you can tell me exactly the plight of Romeo and Juliet. You're not going to do anything unless you can tell me the slave triangle and why it's like it's all of those things didn't make sense to me when I was capable of learning things I was interested in easily. And I never understood why they were teaching me those other things and that, you know, friction. So I wrote a book about that. Amazing. Oh, wow. Now, but do you have another question? Sorry. No, I mean, do you have a, a publication date or is that still all in the That's still all process? in the air. I would, uh, I mean, something else I could promote is I was asked to be one of a few poets from across Canada for African theology, Greg Davis, uh, one of the founders of Slam Poetry in Canada is starting this series of uh, novels and the first one's going to be just on black poets. And so I'm in there with greats like uh, George Eliot Clark, Afua Cooper, like all of these. I don't know why they picked me, but you know what? I'm in it. So we all put in poetry and an essay and that comes out this February. And uh, they have a Kickstarter on right now if you'd like to donate to help. And that helps more promotion for the book to get out. And those funds go into making the second book, which I think he mentioned was media. And he's going through all aspects of Black culture and shining a light on it through the Black people in Canada. Because he said, we really need a compendium of what is Canadian Blackness through poetry. All right. Through authors that write books. Okay. Now through nonfiction. All right. How about we go through musicians, all musicians write in and he's really building up a library of knowledge that we can all reference the first of that being poetry. So uh, I would just keep an eye out for that. All right. Cool. 
have another question. I'm, I'm curious. Now I know you said that you didn't like necessarily take inspiration from any of the, the white poets that we learn about in school, but is there other than like your household making you gravitate towards the rhythm of speech? Is there a reason why you've chosen spoken word? Is it something that came naturally? Have you like tried other styles and hated them? Because I took a creative writing course, would have never written a villanelle, wrote a villanelle. Now I'm obsessed with villanelles, but I'm never probably going to publish one. But I'm just curious if there's other kinds that really speak to you or if there's anything else you would consider publishing that's written or if it's just spoken words, you're jamming, that's it. Uh, I would say... So now that you're bringing me back by really holding me to the fire on this influence thing, I did audition for a play in high school. Uh, what was it? Copacabana. And I went in and gave the whole speech of the Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream. And just the way he speaks and the rhythm of his words and the sweltering injustice and the way he would just put you on that desert island and feel the heat and relate the heat to just these legislative laws that just beat you down and make you sweat every second of the day and every moment is a challenge to move your feet. And he just portrayed that through words. I'd say, okay, Martin Luther King Jr., definitely. And I did that whole thing, blew the judges away, they put me into the play and I was awarded thug number two. And thug number two was different from thug number one because I got to walk on stage with a gun in my jacket and take off the main character and be a bouncer. And that's what talking about sweltering injustice got me in my public school days. <laughs> Were there other black people in the play? No. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, okay. He's the only black guy. They have to put him as thug number one. But then who was thug number one? <laughs> Wait, I have so many questions now. Who was the better thug? No, right. Why I'm offended on two levels. As a black person, I'm upset for you. And as a black person, I'm upset for thug number two. <laughs> That's, but wait, but you also didn't answer my second question. Have you ever tried other types of, of poetry? Uh, yes. That's, uh, I like uh, rhyming. What I've tried the uh, Shakespearean sonnet, and that is like my Mount Everest, okay. is trying to put that much constraint on my writing. But right now I'm using, you know, the, the 10, the five meter iambic thing. So every verse has to have those 10 beats. I'm doing that right now because I realized a little bit of structure helps me out a lot. But no, I only try other forms just as a sense to kind of practice because you need to you need to experience. If you're going to be good at anything, you need to see what everyone else has done, all the different types of it. And you have to put in a good try of those things. You you know, you can't be a carpenter and only work with one tool. I only hammer nails. That's all I do. And it's like, no, no, no. You got to hammer the nails, get a solid wood, you got to, you know. You got to know different types of wood, glue, screws, build it. Like you got to get the blueprints in. So I'm very completionist in that. I want to experience the whole process, but spoken word is uh, definitely, you know, 
my talent. I don't know if it'll be what gets me, you know, to the top of my vision, but it's definitely what comes most natural. And I like putting pressure on. You know what the funny thing is that you said you, you played a uh, play called Copacabana song by Barry Manilow. Uh, but the regional thing of Copacabana is that it was a club in New York, 19, which uh, it's called the Copacabana is cultural appropriation at its finest because it was a club owned by white people that had a Brazilian theme and they used Latin artists and they had food, they had Chinese food. So definitely like if you if you read it if you read the the, the copacabana the whole story or that there's like even a couple of things it is cultural appropriation that is fine uh, well barry manilow does sort of say that though because copacabana is supposed to be the heart, hottest bar north of havana and then it's barry manilow singing about it so i was always a little like but are you sure even, it's not even a bar in havana it was in new york <laughs> Wouldn't I mean is not is New York is technically north of Havana, super far north, but he's not wrong. And the funny thing is that they didn't even let black people in until like 19 like 1940 black people in. So that that's kind of funny that they let you play like oh <laughs> let, let let's play you with black thing because it's like oh let's get this cultural appropriation and song. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was gonna say what did what did you study in university? You said you finished study there. Yeah, so in university, and so I went to college and uh, got my diploma in kinesiology, and then I did my two and two. I took it at Holland College, Charlottetown, PEI, lovely place. And uh, then I went to UMB to finish up a degree in kinesiology. But in the last year, because I was working through my uh, degree, I worked at a family-run gym, and I constantly ran into people that would want to change their behaviors and just want to, I used to be able to ski. I don't know why I don't now, please help me get in shape. And I'm like, I'll do better than get you in shape. I'll make sure you're skiing again. Let's work towards getting you towards the activities you used to enjoy. And I would do that. And the clients would go back into their world and homes and stuff. And they'd come back having lost it. And it gave me a sense that Helping people on an individual level in an environment that is toxic and doesn't want them to be healthy isn't the best use of my time if I want to create change in people's lives. I have to go after the environment. So in my last year, I switched to recreational management with a major in community wellness. That's where I got the idea that, okay, we need artists. We need culture creators. There's a lot of issues with helping, you know, the Black movement in New Brunswick. And one of them is we have no written words or no written history. The provincial archives doesn't keep any of our stuff. Like everything is oral history here in New Brunswick. So this comes from uh, a degree in community wellness put in the context of New Brunswick and blackness. So that's what I got. That's kind of interesting because I was like, how do you go from kinesiology writing and art? But uh, you you explained that pretty well and on how did that came about? Because I was gonna, I was like, whoa, that was a that's a kind of a big change from here and there. Uh, but uh, you know, and, and again, it, this goes back to catching up. I think you started discovering that while you started getting experience, and I think experience is, is the best. Personally, I, I think sometimes when uh, people say, oh, I want to go to college and go college and get a job. I, I told somebody and this was told to, and I didn't get it because I was a, I was ignorant. You know, ignorance told me, look, 
if you want to get a job, you're better off working from the ground up and college because you'll have 10 years of experience <laughs> and you'll mm-hmm. get a better job. Now, if you want a career, that's a different story that you that takes some education. And I, I, I never understood what a job and a career was. And, and then I understood. Uh, but that that's definitely kind of interesting in how you got how you got to that. And I, I want to ask something about that. Like, you seem pretty busy. You go to YouTube, you're there. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of your poetry there. There's a lot of things that created this organization. Uh, you seem pretty in that ass. Does it take, uh, as this podcast as well and other organizations, does it take a lot to build, to have a, a footprint being a person of color? Because you, you can see as an organization, you have to build things for the ground up. It's not like things are made. For, mm. It's not like there's not a made thing for like, we go... And, and I think that we, we recently had a meeting uh, as a group. And, and one of the things that I started, uh, so somebody asked us like, oh, is there something that you want to acquire to be in Canada? I'm like, and I started thinking and I was like, other than maybe a radio station in Toronto or somewhere, there's not really a media platform that just has black point that, that doesn't exist. It, mm. It's just there's nothing like that. It's not in Canada. At least. If you go to the U.S., that's a different story. Uh, but. Do you think it's hard uh, as people of color to have a footprint, especially in the maritime, since we have to build it up? And, and how do you think that can be changed? It's hard for those of us who want it. I believe it is impossible for those who are of the Black community and don't even know that they it's, would like it. Like it's, it's literally an unknown unknown for most people in the Black community. Just talking to Black artists and saying that, you know, you want to be a professional artist, you want to make money. Well, how about we get you some grants? It's like, well, how do, why would I get an arts grant? Like, how, how would I do that? I'm not good enough. I'm like, actually, you qualify based on these things. It's a literacy of the system as, you know, failing and systemically backwards as it is. Most people in our community don't even engage. They just do the best they can with what they like to do and know. It's not a growth mindset, it's a survival mindset. And so for those of us that want to grow and create something and have a a legacy for future generations, because as we know, the New Brunswick Population Plan is heavily recruiting from the Caribbeans and continental Africa. Those are the people we are bringing in because the people we are raising through the public education system are running because there's no growth opportunities. Youth out migration is one of the largest problems we face and they're shutting down schools in rural communities because there's not enough kids or families to put in them. So gas stations are shutting down. And to solve that issue, instead of teaching our children and families to love their communities and provide entrepreneurial opportunities there, we're immigrating people with the entrepreneurial growth mindsets into New Brunswick. A lot of those people are black. So in order for those people to get with the international students and the people that are born and have a generational born here in uh, New Brunswick, we really need to start setting up celebrations and events and a history of what the culture is like and what we want to do to change it, or we're going to have about 10 different paths going in different directions. And uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it's a wonderful, complex, wicked problem that I, you know, spend too much time pondering. Well, and, and you said something that, that reflects 
to myself, you said surviving. Uh, and I think when you look at it from an eyes of an immigrant, when it comes here, uh, doesn't see how a person that was born here, an immigrant as quote unquote, a better place. And they are doing their work and they get more uh, than they did in their respective country sometimes twice. And for them, they feel like they're living. They're saying, I was doing, maybe I was doing something less in my country. Maybe I was a doctor in my country, but now I work at a general call center, but I have a car, I have a house, it's way better than what I would do in my country. But technically, is that person is surviving because mm. he doesn't understand that if he gets a more literal and he gets to more research, he could do twice as much as what he's with the level of work that he's putting in. And, and I think a lot of people here don't understand that, that uh, when you're a person, an immigrant, or even a person of color, that uh, it doesn't, you know, that the system understands that you were segregated, understands that you, you have it. It's not that the federal or provincial government doesn't understand that. They do know it. And they were like, they don't know how to solve it. So sometimes they say, hey, here's some money or here's some things, but you have to go to the research. But they're not going to tell you this. They're going to be like, oh, you know, it's there. We gave it to you. Cool. But nobody's going to give it to you. You have to kind of research and learn and learn how to, how this, which I, I, I realize that, that that's pretty, that, that is pretty that that goes within that. And, you know, I would say also, and I'm going to ask you that as well, having that place that in New Brunswick, all of these things, and a lot of people are oblivious to the fact that there is power in, that there is power mm-hmm. in gatherings, that there is power in all of this. Uh, how do you think, since you lead an organization, how do you think this would influence the province if people of color and minorities start gathering together? How do you think would influence regarding how we how the system is right now? Would it change or, or how do you think it would impact if, if that gets to happen? Oh, we're going to be we could be pulling this thread for a while. Uh, <laughs> you go I'm ahead. Gonna, I'm going to take this two different ways. I'm going to split it in the middle. I'm going to say, do we want to change the system? and the resources it enables us, or do we want to change our greater Black communities and the resources we share with and build with each other? Because in order to get one, you're taking away motives from the other. If you want to change the system, there's a lot of activism, there's voting, there's rallies, there's marches, there's things you have to do in order to make sure that you are heard and you get that money and you change. That doesn't necessarily make you a cohesive community. It makes you focused on that one goal of making sure you can punch a big enough hole in the system that you can then fill and become let's say, a part of changing it. But that's a long process. So are we going to put resources into that? Or do we want to have, say, a Black neighborhood that is taken care of by, you know, all of its neighbors know each other. We help our kids go through school. We babysit each other's, you know, kids and all that. We are uh, self-sufficient. You know, as you said, we have our radio station. We have a space that we use that's a rec center. These are different. I say, okay, they're in the same direction, but one's a left path and one's a right path. And I am not sure which one I am choosing, but I just know that from all I've been trying to do, 
there is a difference between constantly emailing all the political parties every time it's elections and saying, what are you doing for our community? And being able to show up every time at the council meetings and say, we are here. I represent these people. The, we need those in order to get anything. And as a small aside, the federal government put out $100 million for Black communities. Atlantic Canada, in general, got $3.2 million of that. And that went to Nova Scotia to distribute to all the other provinces. So I have no idea how much of that $3 million that Nova Scotia got, that New Brunswick got. So we're not even on the level where we're recognized federally as a Black community in New Brunswick to even get the throwaway money, a hundred million, they're just like, solve your communities. We don't even get that. So how much advocating do we need to get that to help our communities or how much advocating do we need to, you know, help for better childcare, for better education or better rules at homeschooling. If we want to teach our kids, you know, how to best do stuff. I, you know, anyway, I complexify everything, but that's something I reflect on often is do we want to change the system or are we trying to change the mindset of our community into one? Do we really want to just, I don't know. There's something, there's a block there for me mentally and I don't know what it is, but I will say now, and you know, I talk forever. I would like to see, this is my, my secret dream, a black city. I would like all the international students that come from the continental Africa countries and Caribbeans and all of the immigrants families that we get from those communities and all of the people that are generational black born that have here from black loyalists that were promised land that was given to them and then was terrible. I would like it if we all had our own little city. I think that's uh, and see how well that works and us actually face each other. Because I think the differences between those three segments, those that come here that are highly educated and get scholarships to come here that are black, those that come from families that come here and they have to deal with moving under the social ladder and dealing with racism and those that are born here and where they come from. I think we need to interact those communities more than having any one of those communities fight to advocate for the other ones. I don't know. I don't know. Before I hand it to Hillary, now I will say that don't you think that those two sides would be able to coexist in, in some shape or form? I mean, yeah, and I'll, I'm probably team community due to the my family upbringing. It's not even like my family got along. They, they fought and argued all the time, but there was still love and respect. So getting along with difficult people kind of just comes naturally to me because that's, so I'm like, yeah, we can get along. That's that's an achievable goal. I'm not politically minded. So that's why that one seems a bit more of a reach for my capacities and social resources at the moment. But I know there are people that do excellent at it, and I'm friends of some of them. So, yeah, we can do both. I think that sounds great. Hillary, go ahead. I just wanted my weekly moment. This will be airing September 1st of asking Blaine Higgs where the commissioner against systemic racism is since you brought up the funding because we're September 1st. The job posting went up May 7th. The job ends May 2022. We'll be September 1st when this airs. Blaine, we're running out of time for you to solve the racism. And I just really would like him to figure it out because I think that he was really going to try. Oh, come on. Right, shit. 
I'm just waiting for him to straight up just be like, knock, 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 Kusoni Raymond. Hey, you did all this work and I'll pay you for the work. But I don't even think that's happening. Like, can you just either plagiarize the black people who did the work for you and release the work or admit that you were never going to do it? Like, we're going to have a whole new prime minister or the same one again by the time anything gets done with this. But I just like my moment once a week to ask Good old, good old Blaine Higgs with his five cent minimum wage raise where our commissioner is. That's all. All right. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if it, if you guys have any more questions anyway, uh, but I will put you on the spot here uh, before we add, because I, I, I think you're I think you're super interesting. I think we could have you hopefully when you release your book, however you release it, because uh, that's the beauty now that you could go independent, you get it published. I know you're going to release it and I can't wait to read it. Uh, so hopefully when that happens, but I will put you on the spot a little bit. Cause I mean, if you're an artist, you can you spit some poetry for us? sure? Uh, let's see. What's a good poem for all the ranting in the raving that I just got done doing. Uh, yeah. Okay. I got one. <clears throat> this one is called perfect vision. These ones and zeros cannot cage the chains of our now digital age, the passive progressive games we play on visual minorities. It's all the same, I hear them say. They can't see color, I can't place blame. They close their eyes to escape shame. Again, 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 again. Convenient all, what they can't see, the violence and brutality. They're blind to facts and mysteries that would fuel their guilt and misery. Behind closed eyes, they've painted me into a world I never see. And it is bleach applied so liberally that it coats and claims all I could be. I hate those eyes and I know that's wrong because my mother taught me to be strong and my family has warned me this road is long, but that is why I shall become the one who battles mysteries, who will not be bleached from history, who will share tales of adversities in hopes that now we all can see that to build a world of open minds, our allies cannot be culture blind. That was dope. That's dope. <laughs> oh my God, that was great. So, that was so good. That was awesome. If people want to find you and what you do, where do they go? Uh, you can find me Facebook, Instagram at The One Black Poet. That's one as the number. And uh, yeah, reach out to me there. I am quite friendly. Uh, I will put this out there. If you ever want to put a poem, if you want to put it on our website or whatever, feel free. <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, I mean, definitely, it was great to have you. Definitely, again, anytime you want to be part or, you know, these doors are open for you. Yeah, I think we need more people like you. I think there is a, I think there's a lot of people like you. It's just finding them like you're finding the artists. But we definitely in your brunch. Stay in your brunch. Hillary, go ahead. 
Also, I was just going to say, please send along to, to me or to one of us the um, the Kickstarter link and the other link for the association. And I'll make sure to share that when we uh, post the episode so people can donate to the Kickstarter and find the Artists Association as well. So all very interesting. It was so good to have you on. No, and thank you. Thank you, Clinton. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you, Fidel. And I got to say, Fidel, I saw you on the uh, Black Funders call and hearing your vision of a Black media hub, that's what really sold me on the whole thing. It's just hearing you talk so uh, positively about your goals and vision for Black in the Maritimes that when Hillary reached out, I was like, of course, that's a brother with the same vision. We, we got a, we got a, you know, lockdown legacy. We got to catalog our excellence. We're doing great things out here and people are forgetting about it. We need the books. We need the media. We need the people. We need the platform. So, yeah. Well, that's what we hear because we're not going to let them forget about it. That's, that's the deal. We're, we're not, we're not moving. That's the deal. Yeah. We're not going out West. We're not going to Alberta. We're not leaving. So we're going to make them share that what we, we're here to stay and we want our voices it's definitely what we want so again, you say that while i sit in ontario in shame hey <laughs> you, you you're you're pressing higgs you should write that on the blog actually anyways my hey. next blog is just going to be in caps please where's the commissioner uh, <laughs> followed hey. by followed by a lovely like a video of a spoken word poem from Tandoi being like asking for the commissioner it'll be a collab look for it all right. Uh, anyway, uh, McCarthy, thank you for being with us. And again, if you guys uh, want help us out, just go to Patreon and Black in the Maritimes or PayPal. Uh, don't forget to like us in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. But we have 6,000 followers now. Uh, we hit 6,000 and the video is about to hit 2, two million views. I don't know what's happening. I'm just letting it happen. Yay. <laughs> Let's just let it happen. Uh, hopefully we can reach 1,000 on Instagram. So please uh, f- follow us on Instagram so we can hit 1,000 followers. Uh, thank you for everybody that's listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you guys next time. Peace out. Bye. Peace. See ya.